0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 30th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The power to make war is a power that is reserved to Congress. But today, Congress has handed much of the war power to the executive branch. Republican U.S. Representative Warren Davidson is working with fellow members of the U.S. House to reassert congressional prerogatives on war, trade, regulation, and other areas where the White House has taken more control, either unilaterally or with congressional acquiescence. We spoke earlier this month. I watched a video uh, that you participated in of a of a committee hearing um, that was uh, put up put online by Congresswoman Barbara Lee. And what really struck me about the discussion that you had with uh, uh, Representatives Amash and Massey and Representative Lee was um, really just how how you're trying to get to an agreement here on something that is pretty basic, which is getting Congress to do its constitutional duty with respect to asserting its own authority.
1: Absolutely. And in that case, specific to war making, which was one of the most basic premises, and it's been highlighted on a couple other topics recently. It's a big part of why I chose to get out of the army. And uh, you know, it's addressed in Federalist 69 pretty, pretty cleanly. How do we get Congress to care about this? It, it seems that uh, not just
0: war, but with all manner of uh, areas where Congress should be the one making the rules and deciding what those those rules actually mean. Um, they've delegated so much of that to the executive branch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, just tariffs, that's in the news recently, all kinds of things that we could talk about. But the trend is Congress really doesn't like to vote. They like avoiding voting. And uh, the Senate is even worse than the House on avoiding voting. And, um, you know, what Congress cares about is popularity with the public, and they're not going to care about it until the public cares about it. And, you know, Ben Franklin famously said, as he's walking out of the Constitutional Convention, uh, "A republic, if you can keep it." And so I think you know he highlighted it. It's hard to keep even when you want to. And today you see a lot of people really wanting to vest all that authority in a president. They want to be able to elect the president, but um, a lot of the popular will has lost confidence in Congress. They don't trust the legislature. They see us as bogged down and nonproductive. And they like the efficiency uh, of of all that authority being vested in someone that can act swiftly uh, because we've proven to be ineffective.
0: Now, do you you think uh, there is a new AUMF that has been uh, floated by uh, Senator Corker? And I can't remember who is uh, with him on that. And Instead of repealing the AUMF of 2001, it seems that this piece of legislation would actually sort of enshrine a lot of that authority in the executive branch.
1: Yeah, it would basically say, you know, uh, the executive branch is just going to keep making war. And if you strongly object and find a way to get it to the floor for a vote, you might be able to stop that. And you know the default provision. This is uh, Corker and Tim Kaine. Um, the the default provision of this this bill is that Congress can have a vote to stop it, but otherwise the executive branch can just do whatever they want. And it should be the exact opposite. You know, even if you were going to give some. Um, delegation, which truly shouldn't be there. I mean, this is already addressed a a doctrine uh, on on delegation. But um, it should be the exact opposite, where the president can act, but uh, can't continue to act without an affirmative authorization from Congress. Uh, And that would be an an incremental move from what's already supposed to be law. But as you can see, the practice has been... So, I mean, in a way, Quirker's bill just codifies what the practice is. Now you've asked uh,
0: committees uh, throughout Congress, or you've you've put together a resolution that would have the various committees examine where uh, they view uh, there is executive overreach. Can you walk me through what that, how that would how that f- would function if passed?
1: Yeah, so it's called the Article I Restoration Resolution, Uh, you know, clearly focusing on Article I, we're uh, establishing the legislature. And, you know, we've spent a lot of energy talking about making laws, but we all know that, uh, you know, probably 10 times as many rules historically go through the executive branch in a year as what becomes law through Congress. And so uh, rulemaking uh, is done by the executive branch agencies, and it's supposed to be done in line with with the laws that are passed, but sometimes they're they're pretty disparate in terms of uh, alignment there. And sometimes there's no clear basis for why they're doing the rules. And and what's even more concerning is they issue guidance. And guidance isn't really a rule, so they don't go through all the rulemaking path, but they're steering policy through the whole economy. So uh, Congress has got in the House, anyway, sixteen committees of jurisdiction. In theory, they oversee the entire government via these sixteen committees. So this this bill asks the chairman of each of those committees to look through the, your areas of jurisdiction and identify areas where you feel like our authority is being usurped uh, or not clearly asserted, uh, and identify those into one piece, and then we would put those through, and we'd be able to pass one clean bill to try to reclaim that authority.
0: Now, is there some sort of mechanism that uh, the Congress could create uh, within regulatory agencies and, of course, the Pentagon is a regulatory agency in addition to having this uh, sort of supreme responsibility of defending the United States. Is there any way to, I guess, flip the default uh, when it comes to uh, rulemaking to say, well, if this this is the kind of thing that you can issue this rule, but if Congress doesn't formally approve it, it's null and void?
1: Absolutely. You could easily make that the default. That would just be write the law differently. And uh, Congress doesn't really want that responsibility. No, of course not. (laughs) And that gets back to where you started. It's a lot of work. They generally don't want to vote, especially the Senate. I mean, you look, uh, they're probably the most populous body. They kind of work together uh, post-17th Amendment, uh, where they're popularly elected. Uh, They kind of work together until it's about an 80% issue. They really don't want to go on record.
0: One of those issues that uh, may become an 80 percent issue uh, in a few years is that of cannabis legalization. And Ohio, I think, recently rejected a a, a second try at getting a a ballot initiative. Is that something that states ought to be in charge of, in your view?
1: Yeah, I think states ought to be free to, uh, you know, on on recreational use. I do think that uh, at the federal level that it's time to move Uh, cannabis from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 2. Uh, In theory, that could be done by uh, the DEA. Uh, It never seems to happen. And Congress, I think, could easily make it clear that, yeah, no, we're done waiting for this. And in Ohio, they did pass medical marijuana. And I think um, at the federal level, we regulate, via the FDA, all the drugs, all the all the kinds of things that would be used for medical purposes. And what I don't like about the way that uh, marijuana is being legalized, particularly for medicinal purposes, most states are doing it by granting monopolies. So you talk about crony capitalism. Uh, this is one of the most corrupt versions of capitalism in, uh, in, in existence, and it's being done uh, for marijuana legalization, you're granting monopolies to a handful of companies, and then in, uh, even in the medicinal case, if it's truly medicinal, you ought to be able to dose it, and you ought to be able to, be able to buy it via a pharmacy. But instead, they're setting up monopolies called dispensaries, and I, I think that's bad for the nature of our republic. And
0: one of the one of the crit- chief criticisms of the Ohio's initiative to uh, legalize recreational cannabis was that it would have given specific
1: people the power to produce this product. Absolutely. It was was a very bad way to go about the process. And so even if you could get on board with recreational use, um, I I think that that's the exact wrong way to do it. I do think that the federal banking system needs to be able to let states uh, conduct what's legal in their states. And I think that if we can do uh, some good things to be able to provide accountability for the cash flow involving marijuana, uh, perhaps we can cut some of the cash off to the cartels. And I think that's good because I think even the most, there are some people, uh, liberty-oriented folks that, that really don't believe any of the drugs should be uh, criminalized. But you know, you look at heroin, uh, more than 60,000 people are going to die. Even if you want pure heroin, uh, there are Cutting it with fentanyl and carfentanil, you have no idea uh, as to as to the quality of this product because it's illegal, you know. And and the market's there. The cartels don't necessarily care about drugs; they care about the cash. And so, um, you know, how do we kill that market? And I think killing the cash would be a good
0: good path. How much appetite is there uh, in Congress right now to substantially restrict the authority of the president to? not only you know delegate huge amounts of authority to make rules issue guidance on in uh, regulation but also making war these new airstri- airstrikes in Syria it's not clear what the legal authority even was their presidents have at least the last uh, three presidents have tried to or last two presidents have at least presented some legal legal rationale for uh, having undertaken this strike or that strike but uh, this president doesn't seem like he's even willing to do that. Is there a grand bargain that Democrats and Republicans can can strike in Congress to say, you know, you don't like the wars, I don't like the regulatory state. Let's get together and reassert this authority. How much appetite is there really to do
1: that? Well, if you think about that, I've got I've got a couple of bills out there um, that deal with Article One, and one is as you said, the Article One Restoration Resolution. I hope that would really be a bipartisan reclamation of authority. Uh, one is on trade. And, uh, you know, Republicans have historically been free trade people. And so we did a poll, an anonymous poll amongst uh, Republicans in the House, uh, at least in the Republican Study Committee. And it came back, 87% of us believe that we should do what the Constitution says, which is Congress has the authority there, we reclaim Article One. Uh, of course, right now the president has true authority to act on his own, because Congress delegated that authority.
0: For decades and decades.
1: Well, I mean, really, that was the primary way the federal government had money until we passed the 16th Amendment and the income tax. And so after the income tax, Congress has spent less energy on tariffs uh, and has given that authority to the president, except for treaties. So 87% agree on the policy. Congress should vote. Then Kevin Brady wanted to send a letter to the president saying, you know, this uniform tariff piece you know, we have some concerns, Mr. President, we'd like to work with you uh, and deal with China's practices, uh, which aren't truly free trade. But uh, but we want to have a say in that. So only 107 people were willing to put their name on that, way less than 87%, obviously. And I thought, you know, 107 co-sponsors, pretty good starting point for a bill. Let's drop uh, the Global Trade Accountability Act and that would basically say, we want to reclaim our Article I authority on trade. And I'm only up to about eight co-sponsors so far. So that's the <laughs> gap between policy and politics. And so I think that's going to play out on a number of topics, whether you're talking trade, war making, uh, or regulatory state. Uh, do you think that that is uh, something that, that uh,
0: you know, it, you're, you're in favor of reasserting this Article I authority? Right now, it seems like if somebody's going to run for Congress, and say, we need to reassert Article 1 authority, the people best positioned to do that right now are Democrats.
1: Well, because right now it's seen as against the president. And against a lot of this, this president, right? That's right. And, and a lot of Republicans feel hesitant to do that. And you know, look, I'm not trying to reassert Article 1 authority in the same way, say, Jeff Flake is, because he's clearly hostile to the president. Uh, I, I support our president on a lot of positions. I, I don't agree with uniform tariffs, But I was a manufacturing guy. I mean, I've been on the receiving end of bad trade practices. Current trade with China is like watching basketball where no one calls fouls. No one gets to shoot free throws. That's not free trade with China. Uh, So I support free trade. China doesn't practice free trade. And so, um, you know, what, what gets harmed, not just low prices for consumers, that's a good, but the bad thing is capital formation in the U.S. because people put capital at risk in the U.S. and then uh, that that capital is put at risk and destroyed because we don't we don't enforce the law on trade we don't enforce free trade, so uh, you can be supportive of our president and still be an Article One person. People are reluctant to do it. We'll see how it turns out. How can you name some names
0: here with respect to the people who are uh, on both sides of the aisle who are really leaders uh, in this principled fight to put Article One authority, you know, the first branch of government. Congress to reassert that authority
1: in a very broad way. Well clearly the leader of this is uh, in Congress is is Mike Lee from Utah. I mean he's got you know he's written books on it he's been Talking about it way before I was even uh, elected to office, I was a fan of Mike Lee as a, as a manufacturing guy. So he's one of the leading voices in Congress on the topic. Uh, you know, in the House, uh, Jeb Hensarling, unfortunately stepping away, he's kind of been in in that vein as chairman of financial services, and then prior to that, just as a you know member of Congress, he's been effective. Uh, but you think in general, uh, guys like Justin Amash and Thomas Massie. Uh, and on the on the Democrat side, at least with war making, Barbara Lee. Now, some people uh, use that because they're in, when you come to war making, they're, they're not really in favor of any wars. Okay, so it's just a means of not going to war ever. Uh, whereas, I mean, I'm a former Army Ranger. I mean, there's lots of things I would authorize, but I can't go and say. I can't go and say that the founders didn't create this system with a clear delineation. I mean, it should be difficult. It should be difficult to go to war. And the default should be that we're not in a state of war. And the reality is, is since World War II, the default has almost been that we're at war with someone.
0: Warren Davidson is a Republican U.S. representative from Ohio. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.